too sure but i think i have a little bit of an idea i think they were the hippies before the hippies so straight edge hippies no they definitely were not straight edge okay cool (laughs) well so the term beat which turned into beatnik came from jack kerouac okay have you heard of him? Famous author. That would be awesome if I just hadn't somehow <laughs> in my entire life. I'm relatively certain they tell you about him in school. Yeah. He wrote a few famous books and was a defining member of what was first called the Beat Generation. Uh, so some of the central figures, I would say there's a top three. There's Jack Kerouac, Allen Ginsberg, and William Burroughs. Ah, uh, dude. Burroughs is one of my favorites. Yeah. He's got a crazy life, a crazy story in general. Have you ever heard the short story Espontavio? No. Did he write that? Yeah. It's like maybe, so I actually have like an audio of, I think it's actually Burroughs reading Burroughs. Nice. And I've lost it since, but it's uh, the story of Espontavio, which is just a surgeon committing a surgery that the entire point is to put the victim in danger and then save him. (laughs) <laughs> and the Espontavio is a guy that jumps out of the ball, like, because an Espontavio in uh, bullfighting is somebody who just jumps out of the crowd and starts fighting the bull. Okay. And so Espontavio in this is a, another surgeon jumps out and <laughs> tries to do the surgery instead. That's awesome. Does he, uh, like, dance out of the way like a bullfighter does? No, I think like, there's, like, uh... some weird fight. Because okay. they, they do a, they're doing a surgery on a guy to put him in danger, to take him out. Like, it's a performative surgery. Right. But, yeah, I think it ends with him deflecting the Espontavio and then completing the surgery. It's been a long time since I've listened to the story. But, like, the entire <laughs> concept of just a surgeon doing, uh, well, showmanship-style surgery in the first place. <laughs> yeah. And then having, like, a bullfighting aspect is excellent. That is pretty awesome. Yeah, these guys in general, I'd say Burroughs in particular, were definitely fascinated with the kind of weird, just anything strange, um, counterculture. It's kind of like one of the first counterculture movements in America. Well, I mean, I wouldn't say that, but I guess in the uh, 20th century. But yeah, so the Beat Generation, uh, Jack Kerouac coined the term and... He had actually mentioned it in writings to his friends, like in the 40s, but it was just kind of like a off-the-cuff remark. It wasn't intended to serve as like nomenclature for the whole thing. It wasn't like he was trying to name it. Later on, someone picked up on that writing and just started mentioning it in articles. So like there was a New York Times article that was called The Beat Generation, and they did not at any point in time have a sub-generation called the Beat Kids, where <laughs> you beat Beat Kids. Kids on the Beat. <laughs> beat Kids. So, I mean, the the term was really just 
it, it's used in the sense of like I'm beat, just meaning tired. You know, yeah. it's and that's where the counterculture aspect comes from. So you have to think this is kind of late 40s, early 50s. So these are people who at the at the time are like college age, early 20s, basically just saying they're beat from everything that's been going on in the world. So like our entire generation. <laughs> yes. I mean, I feel like our generation is almost primed to be like the new beat generation or like a reprisal. I think we already are and it's just more accepted. Yeah. We should, we could be like the yeet generation or maybe the skeet generation. I'm not okay with (laughs) either of those being associated with me. Like I do think yeet is funny because of (laughs) like the yeet, the rich jokes, but I don't. That's like when they tried to call us Gen I. Do you remember that? No. When we were 12, we were originally going to be Gen I because we were the information generation. Oh, okay. Yeah. Or just iGen, if Apple had exactly. their Exactly. All of this. <laughs> that's probably who started it because at that time, that's when Apple was putting Apple products in every school. Or, yeah. They would, yeah. The, well, carrying case one? Which one was that? Uh, I think that was the the revision of the Macintosh. It wasn't the original Macintosh. Yeah, but the, the oh, you're suitcase about the one iMac. The, yeah, Maybe. was that the iMac? The that was colorful just, one? Yeah. yeah. They donated one of those to every school. <laughs> that is a hostile corporate takeover of your children. Like, it's a yeah. good one, kind of, other than, like, you don't really get to apply it in a business sense after school. Yeah. But I guess... Hopefully make some lifelong customers. Well, there's also, <laughs> at this point in time... You're not as at a disadvantage only ever having used a Mac now, because if you want to go into any visual arts, Mac's cool. You're fine. Yeah. Um, Basically, this whole generation had just seen, you know, the effects of two world wars, uh, massive industrialization. So they were just beat is basically what it came down to. We're trying to look for something kind of outside of cultural norms. So, I mean, when I think of a beatnik, and we talked a little bit about this before, it's like, you know, someone in a beret probably has a goatee. Yes. Probably I, talking some kind of... Yeah. Yo, <laughs> daddy-o. Exactly. And some snapping, goat spoken word poetry of some kind, dark room in a stool, smoking a cigarette. Yeah. So, I mean, most of this uh, whole movement started in New York particularly around Columbia University. But at the time, the other thing that was happening there, as far as what inspired kind of the look and the stereotype, um, this is when jazz, and in particular bebop, are really taken off. Uh, so that was basically Miles Davis's look at the time, one of the pioneers <laughs> of bebop. They all just started looking like Miles Davis. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, that's the best uh, reason for that stereotype to exist <laughs> that I have heard of. I'm much more okay with that. Because originally I was like, is this an entirely uh, put together image by somebody who wants me to think beatniks are assholes? <laughs> I think kind of. Yeah, so beatniks were not looked upon favorably kind of right from the beginning which pretty much the second you explained what an actual beatnik like started telling me your version of beatnik and my version of beatnik were so far off i was like oh i got tricked didn't i (laughs) this is totally just like some whitewashed history shit that uh is never brought up because it's probably important yeah um 
I mean, the the pioneering guys, so like I just mentioned Jack Kerouac, Allen Ginsberg, William Burroughs. Kerouac and Burroughs kind of looked like, I would almost say like military type of guys or like they almost remind me of like Captain America when he was trying to get into the military, like in those so Marvel he movies. Just tucked in his shirt. Yeah. Because everything else about that era is those are the clothes they had. So they kind of <laughs> yeah. have to look like that. Yeah. I guess I just imagine, you know, especially since it's like this whole counterculture thing and we've been sold this image of like a boat beret wearing goatee dude. Well, also kind of at that time wearing a beret instead of a proper hat would have been a counterculture thing to do. Yeah. So I think that kind of developed and that's kind of where the look went. But in the beginning, it was like just very clean cut American. Like, we have to I look attend. this way. Yeah. Like I'm going to school. I'm in university kind of deal. So that's most of these guys did meet, like I said, at Columbia University. Allen Ginsberg was the one who actually attended I think most, as far as I can tell, I think the rest of them kind of partially attended or were just hanging out in the area and on the campus. That's kind of what I did to you in Tucson. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, you know, college, all the cool stuff with college, you don't really have to go to class, I guess. Correct. It's just... <laughs> I did not have to go to class and I got to do most of the cool stuff at college, except for learning college stuff. Yeah. I mean, I did audit a couple of classes, but then I got asked uh, to not anymore. Yeah. So I guess what really kind of kicked it off or made it the whole movement catch the eye of the public more than just be its own kind of internal thing was Allen Ginsberg. Uh, he wrote a poem. It's called Howl. And you might be familiar with the poem or kind of parts of it or even just references to it that have come out of it since then in popular culture. Uh, it's that poem that starts like, I saw the greatest minds of my generation. I have so many versions of that poem in my <laughs> head. And one of them involves Sharpies. One of them <laughs> involves um, uh, telling like mom jokes in the back of stand-up comedy fucking dive bars. <laughs> like, yes. I don't think I actually know that poem itself. I only know parodies of it so the poem when it came out was very well regarded but also very controversial um it actually took some time for ginsburg to get it published i think other writers were very excited about it and kind of saw the the cultural value in it as well but it was at the time considered to be very obscene and a lot of publishers tried to stay away from it he eventually had some people that kind of took his side and fought for him and eventually got it published and it became very famous. But the reason it's obscene is because he basically just talks very openly about drugs and sexuality and homosexuality. I mean, that would have definitely... That's that's just Shag going to jail at that point in time in history? <laughs> exactly. I mean, Ginsburg himself... Um, I'm not sure what he would have classified his sexuality as or if there's like an, a, an official word on that. It's just um, like, my sexuality is cool. <laughs> kind of. And that's kind of a part of the beat generation in general. And a lot of these men and women uh, were just 
very openly sexual and experimental. Kind of like the hippies that came after them, if you imagine that. For some reason, Allen Ginsberg getting fucking down dirty (laughs) is not something that settles well in my head. Yeah, he's like... I'm generally pretty sex positive. I don't even know what he looks like, but I'm imagining oh, some... Oh, well, let me show you. Dude, it's... <laughs> so, I <sighs> mean, the he does look a little different throughout his life, but... Oh, dude, he looks like... What's his face from uh, The Princess Bride? Inconceivable guy. <laughs> yeah, exactly, that's look perfect. Look up who that is so that everybody knows what's that guy's name. Uh, Yeah, what is his name? I know the guy's You're already on Wikipedia. The actor's name is Wallace Shawn. He's uh, Vizzini in The Princess Bride. This is who you're thinking of, right? Yes. Yeah. That's that's what Allen Ginsberg looks like in his Wikipedia picture. And now that's (laughs) what I'm imagining having a, what I'm assuming is kind of a straightforward, like, button-down tie orgy. (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, in this beginning phase of the whole beat generation beatniks whatever you want to call it he as far as i could tell he was bisexual he was with men and women kind of after that period so like early 60s on he he wasn't married to a man but he had a life partner who was a man his name's peter orlovsky he's also a writer yeah i'm relatively certain he couldn't be married to a man at that point in time except for in whatever i would say hippie but pre-hippie uh marriage that goes on that's just between like you and the spirits or whatever yeah um but it it was something that they i think avoided as well so i mean i don't want to speculate on too much or their relationship or what they would have done i don't know whether or not this was a legal thing or he just wasn't in the commitments (laughs) but they had an open relationship i think ginsburg pretty much he just was with peter but uh peter was like known to uh be a wild man i suppose where was i going with that oh yeah so i mean in the beginning it was basically just a experimentation with drugs sex (laughs) writing art these guys were kind of doing anything and everything that they could did they start a commune um, you know, as far as I know, they didn't, but I know there was a handful of places that they would kind of gather and almost like camp out for just days. Yeah, I always had that idea when I was a kid, like just go through the country and buy like seven or eight mansions <laughs> yeah. and just keep them as like open mansions for anybody who wants to show up that is in your uh, club of weirdos. Yeah. And while you mentioned mansions, I think this is also a an interesting aspect of this. Although these people were very counterculture, they lived kind of a bohemian lifestyle and basically were portrayed and genuinely were living the life of a poorer person. They all came from very wealthy families. Yeah, that's why they did it. Because (laughs) they had the opportunity to sit there and get tired. Yeah. Other people just get ground down in the I'm tired and can do something part of just goes away. And they're like, I must like that's everyone who works in a McDonald's. Literally all of them. Yeah. Yeah, I completely agree. And it's kind of interesting, you know, even the title of the beat generation and what we just talked about, how they were beat, tired of the world, kind of disillusioned. It's like there were 
I think so many voices during this time that we never got to hear. And it's interesting that these guys who kind of had the opportunity to go to college and, you know, attend these kind of more prestigious uh, institutions and that kind of thing, you know, they were the ones that I guess kind of got the word out for everybody else. Mm, This does make a better beat kid jokes because this means that the hippies (laughs) are the beat kids (laughs) yeah and so while we're on that um the term beatnik actually came from another journalist you know it was a journalist that brought attention to the beat generation title another journalist in a san francisco newspaper just kind of coined the term and wrote it as beatnik he just came he just added the nick yeah, and people caught on to it, and later they asked him why. And he said, because it sounded cool. Exactly. Yeah, because they be Nick, yeah. <laughs> and he got the Nick part from Sputnik, the Russian satellite at the time. So it was just kind of out in the world, you know, this this sound of the word. I know, but all right, so I'm just wondering where in the time frame of Sputnik going up to us putting something up like was it a joke on beating sputnik i think it was purely just because just, it sounded cool just because nick was sputnik was a word that was like going through his head and he just combined the two yeah. as far as i can tell i've been reading a lot about the russians today <laughs> yeah uh yeah so ginsburg kicks it off right with this poem howl I saw the greatest minds of my generation and just goes into graphic detail basically about what they had been doing for years up to that point. Just living this crazy bohemian lifestyle in New York. So he's the first rapper to rat himself out. (laughs) Kind of, yeah. And, uh... Unicorn's official word index describes freedom as the ability to spend your allowance on whatever products you would like. Well, my little subs, if you'd like to join me next month by the Boom Wound, we'll have a free seminar on the definition of revolution. This message was brought to you by the Revolution LLC. Yeah, let's talk about the style of the beat generation. So, you know, we talked about like the the cool dude in a beret in a club that's like, all right, daddy Yeah. <laughs> and that's, I mean, that is fairly accurate. Um, they like to use a lot of colorful language and words that... When you say colorful language, it has the mom mad at you energy of saying, <laughs> like, fuck, and nothing further than that. So, yeah, I mean, that is kind of part of it. Like, they were... That includes doo-doo and caca <laughs> and, like, ass. I think beatniks would have loved to use all of those words because they're they're funny, they're colorful in a way that's just kind of emotion evoking and also like you're saying like almost foul kind of language. Like if your mom's like, "Hey, don't use that colorful language." Yeah, I'm just I've never heard uh, anybody that's not a mom say that. Yeah. I don't think it's cuz I have heard that before. Well, I guess my grandma's also a mom, but cuz my <laughs> she says stuff like that when she's describing groups of children. Like, like, they use colorful language. (laughs) So they would often combine kind of attention-grabbing, exciting words with another more plain word. 
and the two wouldn't necessarily go together. Like an example that I keep seeing as an example of this too is um, Ginsburg. He would use the phrase hydrogen jukebox. He actually uses it in the poem Howl. Um, so it's almost like, I guess, just further encapsulating that idea of the beat generation of we've just seen all this crazy war and industrialization and technological advancement. And now we're just going to let out this stream of consciousness, kind of electric version of all these thoughts that have been going through our head while this happens. Um, so, yeah, these guys, me, they're all hanging out. They're all kind of inspiring each other to continue writing stuff. Ginsburg was already famous by mid-50s, kind of mid to late 50s. But Jack Kerouac, I think, took a little bit longer. His first major book was called The Town and the City, uh, 1950. But his more famous books were On the Road. That's his huge hit book. That was 57. And Dharma Bums, which came out shortly after that. So both of those books, are you familiar with them or have you read? I've never heard of Dharma Bums, but yes, you can't. I lived in Jackson, man. <laughs> yeah. That's where a bunch of people think <laughs> that they're Jack Kerouac. There's, it's even funnier when there's disillusioned fake Jack Kerouacs because they're some of the coolest people ever. They're like, yeah, I went here because I thought I was Jack Kerouac and I found out that I uh, work at a pizza shop and I'm 40. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, Jack Kerouac was a huge inspiration for what came immediately after the beatniks which was the hippies no what are they adam they're the beat kids <laughs> i'm sorry the beat kids <laughs> um but yeah he was that the dude that kind of started that whole trope of like yeah let's all hop in a car and travel across the country and we're just gonna you know camp out and get in trouble and like live this free life so i mean he was literally doing that as were the other beatniks. I wonder how many of those guys ended up, like, just freezing to death. Well, so, I mean, they did all... Well, I wouldn't say all, but a lot of them did have a tough time. So, Kerouac himself um, basically died of liver disease. He died of a um, some kind of hemorrhage, but it basically was because his liver was failing just from hardcore drinking. So he probably died from liver cirrhosis? Yeah. Um, I think, at least in this Wikipedia article, I think it did say a hemorrhage was what killed him. But yeah, as, of, as a result of cirrhosis of the liver, I'm sure. Um, so yeah, he died in his 40s. That's kind of a lot of the central figures... I think kind of went around that age. Um, another Maybe guy. That's how we should be judging uh, our success in medicine is how long we keep alive the people who just, with no disregard, create and consume. <laughs> like, no, that cyclone of weird over there, we keep him alive till he's 60 now. Like, no problem. <laughs> We're pretty much gods. Yeah. He's been drinking diesel and red number five his whole life. <laughs> Ozzy Osbourne is one of the, the great moments of medical history. <laughs> Wait, what did he do? The fact he's just still alive. <laughs> I mean, he did. Didn't he like he's played with his own feces and like way more than you should be able to in a non-professional setting and yeah. not get sick. I mean, he also bit the head off of a bat, right? That's the famous Ozzy story. 
Yeah, Kerouac died young, and actually, the main character of On the Red is a character called Dean Moriarty, but he's based on a real guy called Neil Cassidy. I was hoping it would be the other Moriarty. (laughs) Neil Cassidy was, I, I think he was a source of inspiration in a large way for this whole group of guys. He did do some writing himself, but he never really reached like mainstream recognition or success or even like critical acclaim. But these guys loved him. And it's actually kind of where uh, Kerouac and Ginsburg developed their style. So, you know, I mentioned they had that kind of colorful language mixing uh, words that maybe didn't perfectly fit together. But every time you say stuff like that, it just makes me think of old Reddit names. <laughs> that are like forgetful narwhal <laughs> narwhal and followed by like four digits yeah or something. <laughs> energetic cabinet 353 <laughs> says i believe that everything on the planet is circles yeah um but neil cassidy he almost had a like a rapping style like he would and this is another thing you have to consider this and i think about half of this group was actively engaged in stimulant use at the time. So this is when Benzedrine... Talking about meth, Adam? <laughs> hey, at the time it was called Benzedrine. Yeah. <laughs> what is the chemical difference between that? Is that an actual... That's an amphetamine or is it... It is an amphetamine. Because I know it's got an E in it, but I don't know how important the F part is. Yeah. Benzedrine was most commonly in inhaler form. But oh, I know. that's fucking awesome. <laughs> Where the fuck or why are we not doing speed and fucking inhalers? I would do that. That would. This is why we don't have that. Do you see how big my waveform got when I got excited about new drugs? <laughs> uh, and Benzedrine was a legal thing. So, like, I, I don't know the exact chemistry behind it. I know it's either an amphetamine or an amphetamine analog, yeah. meaning it's just very close chemically to it. It might have a couple extra atoms on one of the molecules. Uh, but it was a, basically a brand name for amphetamine, yeah. which, you know, today it's Adderall is the brand name of amphetamine. There's actually a few, and they're all basically just isomers of the pure amphetamine molecule. Yeah, so at the time it was Benzedrine. I bring that up because the kind of like free-flowing stream of consciousness rapping style uh, was definitely inspired by that. And a few of these guys and girls were actively on it or addicted to it. Yeah. Cool, man. I mean, (laughs) at that point in time, there's not a whole lot. Like, everyone's stupid. We're all just ingesting fucking poison left and right. Throwing fucking some amphetamines on that might have actually helped you from your, like, steak and eggs diet heart attack you were going to (laughs) have by thinning out your blood enough to where, like, you don't have any clots. Yeah. It's like, ooh, I need some amphetamine to push all this sausage through Oh, my God. (laughs) Just cramming sausage and meth in. (laughs) Um, But Neil Cassidy was a, a known uh, Benzedrine user. And he basically inspired all these guys by just going off on these wild tangents where he would just be saying whatever's on his mind, obscene as it may have been, and just going off. So Jack Kerouac actually 
based the main character, Dean Moriarty, from On the Road on Neil Cassidy. And he adopted Neil Cassidy's style of speaking and writing. You mean he became a drug addict and wrote it down? (laughs) Yeah, I think Kerouac was more into drinking than anything, but he probably was dabbling in Benzedrine and a lot of other things. But I mean, Ginsburg used that same type of style, the just kind of fast-paced, rambling, crazy, whatever. But an interest, another interesting side fact about that character, you know the Matthew McConaughey, all right, all right, all right. Yes. <laughs> the sex pest of Dazed and Confused. Yeah. So he actually, and Matthew McConaughey has spoken about this, he was watching old archival footage of Jim Morrison from The Doors. Okay. And Jim Morrison says that in the video, like in between songs in a live set he was performing. He just goes, all right, all right, all right. And he just straight stole it. Yeah, but Jim Morrison was stealing that from the character of Dean Moriarty from On the Road. Oh, so this is like seven parts of separation <laughs> from Kerouac. Yeah. Or from, what was his friend's name? Uh, you're right with Kerouac, maybe Ginsburg. No, no, their friend it. that they based everything oh, on. Cassidy. Yeah. yeah. Which would be his ear edition number or whatever it is. Can we start attributing? <laughs> I would like to start using the ear edition system on just people. Anybody you know, like their friends or friends, just start assigning them Adam numbers. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If you're not familiar with the air dish number, uh, it's I'm basically... I'm surprised I got that right. <laughs> it's your degrees of separation from the famous mathematician Paul Erdish. So in the math community, right, if you have an Erdish number of two, that means you wrote a paper with someone who wrote a paper with Paul Erdish. If you wrote one with him directly, then you have an uh, Erdish number of one. So I agree with you. Kevin Bacon obviously also ripped off the idea. Kevin Bacon's uh, six degrees of separation. I think it's six degrees. It's either six or seven. I have a problem where whatever the fuck number I'm told something is, and it's like a saying, I just change that number. And I don't know why I do it. Like I always say $9 says instead of the very obvious $10 says, which like... We have a bill for? Yeah. Yeah. It's a natural habit of mine, and I think it might be a sign of mental disease. (laughs) You're just like, 19 is the magic number. I do say nines (laughs) a lot. Nine sixes don't really, like, I wonder if that's just a weird dyslexia thing, and I have it going the other direction. Yeah. Is that dysgraphia? I I think there's actually a word for that. I think dysgraphia is numbers. I personally don't actually think that I have any of those, and I have something (laughs) that just has all of the symptoms. (laughs) It's just all scrambled up there. (laughs) Well, because I don't hear of many people that have the exact same shit that I'd have, except for I know at least one other person that has the exact same, like the exact same. Yeah. Like, we can look at, because one of the things is like, you just make up words. Like, you'll look at a page and take whatever fucking letters are on it and add them into whatever fucking word you're reading and just change the word. And that just goes, that flies right through. And boom, presto, beatnik. No, boom, (laughs) presto, shrimp, when you're trying to fucking read the word cheese. (laughs) Okay. That's an actual thing I did at work. 
thank God the other person that does that was there. And he was like, no, I did it too. There's a fucking SH right there because the SH was too close to the CH. And because it's a sh and a sh and the rule is kind of the same in my head, it just yeah flipped him. So cheese became shrimp because the rest of it didn't make sense. So I just borrowed from the rest of the fucking page. <laughs> so while you're bringing this up, William Burroughs. Yes. Actually... So I think you're kind of familiar. I know we were talking about the Naked Lunch movie, actually. Yes. A little bit ago. He had a a style that almost didn't make a ton of sense. More so than the rest of the beatniks who had this colorful, wild, vibrant kind of style. His was that, but almost nonsense. Yeah, there was a bit of... I think that... Because Burroughs is the only one I'm terribly familiar with. And most of the things I know of Burroughs are... A Burroughs reading Burroughs uh, audio files I got off of uh, Napster nice from back in the day and it was like 200 files and it was all short stories and nothing he's famous for yeah so it was kind of <laughs> like every time I talk about Burroughs with people there no one has fucking any idea what I'm talking about unless they're like a literature major so he was a pioneer of this style called cut up another artist had done it before him maybe it's brian it's spelled b-r-i-o-n uh brian geisen is this guy's what? name that's a cool name that is a sci-fi name <laughs> yeah that is a really cool name. brian geisen <laughs> um but they pioneered this style it was called cut up which basically he would write a bunch of stuff you know this entire manuscript and then would literally cut up the pages and rearrange them. That's really fucked up. Adam, that's how I sculpt. <laughs> yeah. that's. I don't like make a whole thing first usually, but I just make stuff and put it aside. And as I'm going, I'm like, oh, I need an arm. Yeah. And I just take it off of stuff or I have just like a shoe lying around or an eyeball. That's. I did not know that there was a, a word version of that. <laughs> yeah. I call like it stitch whipping. <laughs> okay i think the beatniks would like that do a little stitch whip yeah that is a term borrowed from dungeons and dragons monster manual for the stitch whip zombie which is just a zombie made of zombies nice yeah uh burroughs even thought that his cut up style was almost like a form of divination like it was the randomness of the whole thing was giving him something that he otherwise would not have been able to achieve or see or make sense out of yeah forced perspective man yeah i agree with this wholeheartedly <laughs> and i kind of wish i didn't because it's showing that i'm turning into an old man with empathy cold steel adam cold steel um but neil cassidy going back to neil cassidy so he inspired all these dudes never really got famous on his own and actually died of a drug overdose um, as he was hopping trains in Mexico. Well, at least he didn't die from hopping off a train. Or <laughs> yeah. the worst thing that I have heard that happens, because like the suffocation thing is pretty bad. If you grab the train too soon, your arm comes off. Like, yeah, that's so. There's, there's a rule to jumping on a train where if you can't count the nuts on the fucking wheel, oh, don't like touch the giant. it. Oh, no, nuts like on the, on wheel, the actual yeah. wheel when it's turning. If gotcha. if you can't individually, there's like a spacing you're supposed to be able to count them. Yeah. Because even if you can see them, like seeing them clearly does not mean that that train's not moving 45 miles an hour because it's a huge train. So you can't really tell that. 
Right. So you have to be able to like one one thousand or somewhere in there the bolts on the wheel so that you know how fast it's going so you don't just rip your fucking arm off and uh, bleed off in the middle of fucking nowhere because that's where you jump onto trains. Yeah, so unfortunately he did pass away in Mexico. It's kind of almost mysterious circumstances around it, but uh, he basically was just on a ton of barbiturates. And What's mysterious about that? He's a known drug addict that went to Mexico. <laughs> that's like going to disneyland for a lot of drug addicts yeah i think what was kind of strange about it was that he was generally with a ton of people and was kind of almost like the leader and the loudmouth of the group and he just kind of went off on his own and no one saw him it was like hey what happened to neil and then they found him dead later that day Talking more about the, the kind of the connection between the beatniks and the hippies, Neil Cassidy and another guy, Ken Kesey, were pretty much that bridge. So Ken Kesey is the guy who wrote One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And he actually, so he was on the West Coast. He went to the University of Oregon and was an unknowing participant of MK Ultra. Oh, see, we're such a good country full of trustworthy government figures that do nothing but altruistic things for their citizens. Yeah. So he t- he took part in a university experiment. I mean, he knew that he was a part of of an experiment. He didn't know it was MK Ultra, which was a government program in psyops, basically them trying to control uh, psychic energy and brainwash people and they were doing it through the use of LSD or that was one of the theories that they had was like oh this drug can be used for this yeah they had a lot of them that's uh, <laughs> the whole manusteric goats thing yeah another participant of MK Ultra is the Unabomber yeah I just, pretty much uh, no real good things came out of that well I mean one flew over the cuckoo's nest great book <laughs> alright <laughs> I but has that book actually done positive things? I would say it's kind of a neutral. Like, it, books are good, but it's not done bad. It's a an interesting book. I think it did kind of... If we want to search for a positive from that book, I think it did bring attention to the quality of medical health facilities. See, I'll take mental that health. I'll take yeah. that as a positive. That's a good positive to have there. Yeah. Uh, and I think it kind of ties into the whole beat generation thing. You know, there were all these dudes that were victims of PTSD after two world wars who are sitting in these mental health facilities. Oh, yeah. No one cares about them. The fact that anybody thinks that our parents and grandparents are in any way not just fucking crazy trauma victims <laughs> that have been running a country for 40 years is hilarious to me. Like, you, you were told that you had to hide under your desk to survive something that you knew that you weren't going to survive. Like, no... I don't know anybody really who's like, yeah, the desk was going to save us. Yeah. Like, that's <laughs> the whole replacement with like, I, in my generation, we had to do bomb scares. Like, in my generation, they gave up on it. And they told you about it when you went to school. They said, these guys used to do this thing, but that doesn't work. If that happens, you die, which is the exact same level of fear. <laughs> uh, but Neil Cassidy, uh, he... So Ken Kesey started this group. They were called the Merry Pranksters. I do know of 
that entire things. I'm one of the original band of crazy hippies. Um, They drove. They're called Beat Kids, Adam. (laughs) (laughs) They drove a crazy uh, neon fluorescent painted bus across the country. Yeah. Can you imagine how happy they'd be with the pinkest pink at this point in time? Oh, yeah. I think about that quite often, surprisingly <laughs> enough. Every time I see that color, I'm like, man, the Merry Pranksters. I fucking love that shit. So uh, Neil Cassidy was the driver of the bus. That's a dangerous thing to be. And he was known for being an insanely good driver, even though he was a wild driver. And I mean, he's basically just hopped up on meth, like yeah. <laughs> swerving between well, like, cars. <laughs> is a NASCAR driver good at driving? Or are they just skilled at not crashing a really fast car? Because technically good at driving is following the laws of the road, and that is not what NASCAR drivers do. But they are more (laughs) in control of their vehicle than you, probably. Very good at left turns. Uh, Isn't isn't one of them got some right turns? There's only one. Yeah, I think think Daytona. I was going to say, is it the Daytona 500? Why do both of us know that? (laughs) Yeah, so Neil Cassidy had a huge impact, uh, you know, literal, literally the seminal Beat Generation book was basically written about him. But I would say Ginsburg and Burroughs were the ones that really carried the torch. And Kerouac, I mean, like we mentioned, died early. He died in his 40s. I think he was 47. Uh, but Ginsburg was, I think, in his 70s when he died. And William Burroughs was like in his late 80s. That's because when you're an insane, crazy stitch whipping person, you are imbued with powers. <laughs> yeah. So let's see how old he was. He was 83. So early 80s. Dude, that's past the life expectancy for that entire generation. Oh, absolutely. This is like 72 or 75 around there. And what's crazy about Burroughs uh, and that. Uh, uh, just as far as him living so long, was he was addicted to heroin pretty much his whole life. I mean, of course. <laughs> yeah. His. But did he eat it, Adam? Was he getting nutrients? Just what is heroin made? Poppies? Just eating poppy salad every day <laughs> instead? Is this poppy seed muffin? And the uh, poppy do you salad? remember when we were in high school? I never figured out if it actually happens, but if you ate a poppy seed muffin, you could fucking show up positive for opiates and then blame it on a poppy seed muffin. I heard that every time any of my friends got a piss test about anything, <laughs> and I have never heard it's true or false or anybody trying it. I think it I think there's some truth to that. I think it like almost doesn't register on a test but i think you actually will if you have a super sensitive test you can't test positive and uh there's also an episode of seinfeld about that i think that's why oh, that was that such a fucking goddamn <laughs> everything you believe is a lie yeah and seinfeld and either seinfeld or the simpsons yeah, I was did gonna say, it between seinfeld <laughs> the simpsons like there's got to be a slightly earlier version of that it was elaine i love lucy in the episode of Seinfeld, it was Elaine, I think, who failed a drug test and she blamed it on a poppy seed muffin. That's why you use, use fake piss even if you uh, don't need to, just for the hell of it. <laughs> I mean, I honestly think you should. I would say that it is not an employer's right to have the material that makes up your body, to, just to have your biological material whatsoever. 
Oh man, I want to do a completely different show on that because I have a lot of <laughs> thoughts about that. Because like, where do you go in that situation if you're having to prove that somebody? I don't think somebody who drives a bus should be on drugs, but I also kind right. of agree that a bus company is not the people who should have my anything medical about me at all. Yeah. Exactly. So do you make a completely third party thing that's just like this is a doctor that is a black box of medical attention and they just sign shit. Yeah, I mean, I'm with you. I do agree that some things benefit and need drug testing, but it's crazy how it happens nowadays. But yeah, Burroughs got addicted to heroin uh, pretty early on. He actually, his first notable work was titled Junkie. Oh, dude, I have. I've heard the first like quarter of it. There's some very disturbing shit in that. So... You know, much like we talked about with Hal Ginsberg's poem, very graphic, descriptive. Uh, Burroughs was the same way, a little more abstract, but he would really just lay it all out there. So, I mean, in the early 50s, this was like crazy stuff. Naked Lunch, which came out in 59, he had actually started writing it earlier and there were some versions of it that were out earlier but not published on a wide scale. Um, once it came out, it immediately uh, went to trial for obscenity. That's great. Yeah, it was actually the last obscenity trial in America that was focused only on words. Right? Okay, I was going to say, because I know of one involving the dead Kennedys, which has a really <laughs> funny outcome. Right, and that was because of their album cover, right? Yes, which is a yeah. Giger uh, piece yep. of art. Yeah. Called Penis Landscape. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Uh, so that was the last one involving solely words. And Ginsburg actually also was on trial for obscenity uh, a little bit earlier on. And Lenny Bruce was right around this time, too. The stand-up comedian yes, who actually got arrested for one of his acts. Did we have a very... Uh, <laughs> for a free country... With freedom of speech laws, a very pickled past when it comes to offensive language. So, I mean, that's one of the huge impacts in general of the beat generation, right? Is at this time, uh, America, I think, was just still very kind of conservative, um, had more traditional family values, whatever that means at this point. A lot of religion at the time, too, which... You know, they kind of went head to head with various times. An interesting part of the whole thing that I never really hear talked about or kind of associated with this whole movement. Um, there were actually two pretty notable murders Wait, in what? the beginning of the beat generation. <laughs> Is this going to be like a Biggie Smalls thing <laughs> where one of them is not Jack Kerouac? <laughs> so there were two guys that were important parts of this movement. Um, Lucian Carr and David Kammerer. Hopefully I'm saying his name right. But basically Lucian Carr killed David Kammerer. Um, they were both involved in this scene and writing at the time. Uh, I think they were both students of Columbia. I don't know if they were like enrolled at the same time, but they were hanging out there involved in the beat generation. Basically, 
Lucien Carr claims that Camerer was making unwanted sexual advancements on him. There's a lot of controversy over that, if it's true or not. Basically, there is strong evidence that they were involved in a homosexual relationship. How did he kill him? Uh, he beat him. Okay, I was going to say, this doesn't... This, I was like, <laughs> did he just hit him with a fucking frying pan? Well, because stuff like that tends to matter when it comes into... Like, if you just bludgeon somebody with something that's next to you, that's kind of evidence towards something having happened on the spot. Like, immediately, I'm immediately going into, like, forensics of this thing <laughs> that I have no facts on whatsoever. Yeah, they were involved in a physical fight. Lucien Carr turned himself in after, I think, one day. It was either the same day or the next day. And he basically went back to his friends, like, Ginsburg and Burroughs, like, the literal you know, originators of the beat movement and told them what happened. And they actually urged him to turn himself in. It's kind of one of the first instances of like homosexual panic too. You know, like the whole thing of like, I had to kill him because he was coming on to me. Kind okay. Of thing. Yes. <laughs> Completely insane behavior. Yes, absolutely. I wonder what would happen if you did that to everybody who came on to you that you didn't want to, because I'm sure you'd be bludgeoning unattractive women. <laughs> Uh, but there is controversy about what happened. I guess there are some people within this circle that were even saying Camerer was not making moves on Carr. It was the opposite. Yeah, and this is a whole fucking gaslight smokescreen. Yeah, and I guess Camerer had possibly uh, kind of told off Lucien Carr. He's like, hey, man, I don't, I'm not into and this, this is anymore. a revenge thing. Yeah. Um, but they were all kind of involved with each other and, you know, much like the hippie or the beat kids. That's right. <laughs> there was like a, a free love kind of feel in the whole thing. So like Jack Kerouac and Allen Ginsberg used to hook up with each other. Um, Once again, gross. <laughs> yeah. You know, most of them had, like, long-term wives or girlfriends. That's funny that you said long-term wives. <laughs> We've been married for 40 years, but we might take the next step soon. I'm pretty sure that's death. That's when you die. <laughs> and they, I mean, they kept it alive through the whole thing. Um, even like we were talking about, you know, Ken Kesey and the Merry Pranksters and the yeah. bus and all that. Ken Kesey, during that, like that literal trip, which turned into the book, The Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test, everything. He was married to a woman, but was having kids with another woman. I was going to. I was really hoping you were going to say with a man. Unicorp, as good as cocaine. Yes. <laughs> the, um, the other murder that happened <laughs> within the beat scene was William Burroughs was responsible for. Well, good. He killed his second wife. Oh. <laughs> So he had actually caught a drug charge in America, I think in Louisiana, uh, for heroin. And he fled to Mexico. His plan was to stay in Mexico for five years, which was the statute of limitations for the crime that he had been convicted of. Solid plan. <laughs> yeah. He didn't stay for that whole time. He stayed for about two years. But there were other beat people that were kind of doing the same thing in Mexico. There was an American-owned bar in Mexico that he went to. And 
so these details are also um what's the word i'm searching for here third to fifth hand (laughs) yes and there are conflicting reports of what happened so the first story that came out was uh him and his wife were drinking and he said to her honey let's do our william tell act and she put a glass an empty glass so of this liquor. is manslaughter <laughs> not murder well it depends on which story you believe if he set this up on purpose <laughs> so he supposedly said let's do our william tell act she puts a, a glass on top of her head yeah, he goes to shoot it off and just shoots her in the head and kills her. Had they done this before? No, that... Okay, so, so I, in, I, I more believe this is a murder. <laughs> I was like, if they do this every weekend and it's just a cute couple's thing. Yeah, that was the thing. Even in this version of the story, it's like they had never done it before. But I think that's an agreed upon thing. Then there uh, became another story... William Burroughs says that he was trying to sell one of the guns that he had because he was a firearms enthusiast. Yeah. It's America. Uh, (laughs) Uh, He's like, I was trying to sell this gun and I accidentally dropped it and it went off and it shot Okay. So those are wildly different stories. Yeah. Very different stories, which, you know, makes me think he just killed her in cold blood. Well, I mean, there were other people there, so I would probably go with like the bunch of them yeah and that's the thing i think he had people supporting uh both versions of the story and he hired a a prestigious lawyer in mexico and that lawyer supposedly paid people to just agree with the story gotcha that's a good old trick But that lawyer also had legal troubles of his own. Yeah, because he was doing illegal shit. <laughs> yeah. So he fled to Brazil, I think, while Dude, this was this all is, happening. This is fucking Inception. <laughs> yeah. Fucking Russian nesting dolls of hiding from statues of limitations in other countries. Yeah. Burroughs was, I'm not sure of the exact word, like convicted, tried, charged, whatever it may have been. Um Basically, he was held accountable for it, and he was charged in absentia, as uh, the way I read it. It was like, I don't know that he ever did time for the crime. I think that basically Mexico talked to America. They were like, yo, this dude's guilty, but he never basically faced the punishment for it. Gotcha. That's weird. But he does uh, basically credit this experience kind of for the massive amount of work that came after it. So he was writing at that point, but really hadn't gained notoriety, wasn't a well-known figure. I don't think he wrote a ton either. He was kind of trying to figure out what his style was. But between... So he thought after this happened that uh, he basically was cursed. And he thought that he heard dead people, and specifically this woman... Her name was Joan Fulmer. So there's a very good chance he's also schizophrenic. <laughs> yeah. That were basically kind of messing with him and cursing him. But he thought that though he basically was hearing some otherworldly words as well in that whole experience. And that's where a lot of his work came from. I think he even mentions Joan. There's like a subtle mention of this woman and the incident in Naked Lunch. Indeed. 
Well, that's disturbing. So, yeah, William Burroughs, um, like I said, he kind of kept the whole thing alive um, and brought more notoriety to the movement. So after that experience, you know, he, William Burroughs, gets some success with Naked Lunch. He basically kind of becomes, I'm trying to think of the right word for it, uh, almost a vagrant, I suppose. So he's just kind of traveling the world doing drugs. Most of it was in Tangier, which is a part of Morocco. I think it's kind of like, uh, it's almost like international waters, I think. It's almost like, no, I'm pretty sure that they think they have a nation. <laughs> no, I mean, Tangier specifically. Yeah, it just um, has real uh, least and fast laws. Yeah, like Morocco is a, I think at the time, more conservative, um, where this one section was, it was like a, a trade hub. You know, there were drugs, uh, just kind of a lot of cultural mixing. So he basically hid out there for years, um, continued writing things, you know, meeting people, further developed that cut up style, which would really become his trademark and the style that he used for the rest of his career. And I think in a way, just as far as kind of um, public notoriety was laying low a little bit more in the 60s and 70s, but then moved back to America in 1981 and moved to Kansas. What the fuck? (laughs) Well, I guess he would have been kind of more used to rural-ish life. I mean, Kansas does have cities, but... Yeah. And so I should mention, too, that um, kind of this whole time, Ginsburg... Ginsburg was almost like the the responsible dad of the group. Like, yeah, he tucked in his shirt. <laughs> but he was like a wild guy, you know, did a lot of wild stuff, but was a little bit more academic and involved in academic institutions and that whole thing. So he actually tried to get uh, Burroughs some jobs, like knowing that he was addicted to heroin. He yeah. struggled with these. From personal experience, <laughs> I know how that goes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he knew he was struggling, you know, he, when he was in Tangier, he, he basically left because again, he was getting into legal troubles, drug troubles. Um, and there were people coming after him that I think he also owed money. He was basically associating with the criminals of Tangier. (laughs) I do believe that that makes him a criminal. (laughs) Yeah. Um, so Ginsburg did try to get him a teaching job, which... I think he did teach a handful of classes and then basically just realized it wasn't for him. Um, lived in Kansas, just living his crazy life. He was someone that always kind of gravitated towards the new and fresh thing and also young people. Um, that he whole wasn't sentence, a- creepy. <laughs> yeah. He, I mean, I think Burroughs was kind of a creep, to be honest, but it really was like a... A place of inspiration for him and his art, I think, more than anything else. Yeah, anytime you inspect pretty much anybody you like artistically, you're going to find some shit that you're unhappy about. And um, he always had a fascination with more than just writing. He was, you know, you brought up that you had like spoken word recordings of him and stuff. Uh, He was always really interested in music and 
you know, just art and trying to produce something, basically. So he was hanging out with a lot of musicians um, throughout this period. You know, the I guess the first people that the Beat Generation inspired were really like Bob Dylan, Jim Morrison, The Grateful Dead. You know, they they shouted out in their songs. You know, there's like a lot of references to them. But Burroughs, as far as the musical side of things, uh, continued to be interested in rock. In the 90s, he was hanging out with like heavy metal bands. There's, <laughs> I read this one story. He's hanging out with Ministry. Do you know Fuck. ministry? <laughs> yes, I do know ministry. <laughs> so I'll I'll just paraphrase. I don't want to like read the exact thing, but uh, basically the singer of that group was hanging out with Burroughs and I think it was like 93. It was the early 90s. They're like, yeah, we go to his place in Kansas. He's like 80 something at this point and he just starts shooting up heroin. And they're like, he had these insane syringes from like the 50s. Yeah, he's just got old glass fucking... <laughs> blunt tip <laughs> syringes yeah i guess he pulls out a case with these like crazy syringes from the 50s starts shooting up and the ministry guy's like i don't even know how he found a vein like he's just an old old man at this point practice makes perfect <laughs> yeah. they're getting high the ministry guy sees this stack of mail and he's like hey man what is all this stuff and Burroughs is like, ah, it's just a bunch of junk mail. I don't know why they send it to me. And he's like, hey, this one's from the White House. <laughs> and he's like, duh, it's, it's a scam or something. He opens it up and he's like, hey, uh, the president is inviting you to the White House to read your poetry. And Burroughs' response was just, what? Who's even president nowadays? <laughs> <laughs> That's, I wish that I could have that attitude towards the president. <laughs> yeah. And it was Clinton at the time, so I don't know. That's I, mean, I don't know he, if he ever went and did it, but I just imagine Clinton and Burroughs together. That's hilarious. Dead, yeah, playing the saxophone back up to his spoken word poetry. <laughs> yeah. Burroughs also just had a huge fascination with the occult oh, magic. I, yes, I, the the part of the Beat Kids that I don't be kids to beat Nicks versus the Beat Kids. That's also <laughs> when all the fucking Ouija board shit. That was like the end of that. Yeah, there's so many crazy beat stories, um, but I'll just I'll stop it there. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, so apparently everything I thought about beatniks was visually correct, and the rest of it was bullshit propaganda <laughs> from my childhood. Yeah, I was actually surprised. I knew they were impactful and had a lot of influence on American culture, but. You know, looking into it more, I'm actually surprised by how much of our current modern culture kind yes, of originates with these guys. Yeah, and we're just totally not exposed to the source of anything. Yeah. Like, just, they snuck it in, but we're not going to tell them how. <laughs> anyway, exactly. It's, uh, yeah. Um, if you want to talk to me on the internet, I'm at Jane Fritz, J A I N underscore Fritz on Instagram and Twitter. Yeah, and I am VR Frittatas on Instagram. Uh, there's also the official UPP Twitter and Twitch. And if you like Twitch, you should also follow Andy Pants. Uh, that's me and my wife streaming video games. Andy with two E's underscore pants. All right. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>
Hasta la vista. Yeah, but people eat bats, Adam. Well, <laughs> do you think I'm gonna cut this? Do you think I'm gonna cut this when it comes to it? Because I don't know. It's either really funny or really, really rude. <laughs> it can be both. I guarantee you, people will still eat bats because you know, very soon we're gonna be out of things to eat. So bats.